This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Kelly. Our guest this week is Ambassador Darcy Vetter, Chief Ag Negotiator with the Office of the U.S. Trade Representative. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by NCIS, the crop insurance industry. NCIS provides the primary safety net for millions of acres of cropland and hundreds of commodities across the U.S., enabling farmers to supply our country with food and fiber year after year. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with Ambassador Darcy Vetter next. America's farmers and ranchers are relying on crop insurance now more than ever before to provide individualized protection and to secure operating loans. Protecting more than 290 million acres of farmland and more than 130 commodities across the U.S., crop insurance is the primary safety net for many farmers, enabling them to supply our country with food and fiber year after year. Crop insurance providing peace of mind now and for the next generation of agriculture. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. Global trade is critical to the success of U.S. agriculture. The nation is evaluating the text of the Trans-Pacific Partnership Trade Agreement, waiting for the conclusion of other multilateral trade deals and enduring the consequences of a stronger U.S. dollar. While a shift in China's economy has unnerved global investors, U.S. Chief Ag Negotiator Ambassador Darcy Vetter expects agriculture trade with China to be less affected. Unlike other consumer goods that the Chinese consume, which can go up or down with the markets, uh, they still need to eat. And China is still making major investments in its own production of livestock and other crops, which bodes well for those of us who supply feed grains for, for those animals. So while you may see some slowing, I expect China to remain a top customer for U.S. agriculture. The value of the U.S. dollar, when it's been down, easier to sell to the globe, how is it now? Well, of course, we have seen a relatively highly valued U.S. dollar, and that has had an impact on the price of our exports compared uh, to others. And that's the case for other countries as well. Exchange rates will always have an impact uh, on trade. But I think one of the things we see consistently in U.S. agriculture is that consistency in delivering on our contracts with high-quality product that comes on time There are a lot of consumers who will choose U.S. product over others because of what we deliver and how we deliver it and the transparency that comes with doing business with the United States. So I don't think it's, um, it's an issue we can't overcome. And of course, those, those exchange rates change, uh, over time. But we have seen some effects from a relatively high U.S. dollar lately. Over the past few months, we have seen an increase in the volume of soybean sales from the Southern Hemisphere. Should we anticipate that to continue? Well, you know, Brazil is the largest exporter of soybeans, and I think we can expect that to continue. And one of the things that we have um, noted, I traveled to Brazil with Secretary Vilsack a couple of years ago, and the strength of their investment in infrastructure, their ability to get those soybeans to the port more quickly, means that we should expect tough competition from uh, from the, the southern hemisphere. But I think you're seeing growing demand, and it's not just in China, but in countries around the globe that, as their middle class increases, are uh, increasing protein intake in their diet. And so those soybeans are going to be needed for meat production here in the U.S. and to fuel livestock industries in those other countries. New leadership in Argentina, a changing of their export policies and perhaps even of their currency. Are they still within the guidelines of global trade? Uh, You know, certainly I think there's a lot of anticipated changes 
at this point. I haven't seen uh, those new policies necessarily take effect, but many of them I think we would welcome. Um, we don't. We'd like to see them as a participant and an ally. I think one of the interesting things uh, of the past several years have been the cooperation among the governments and the industries of the U.S., Argentina, and Brazil, um, working with other countries to get them to be more accepting of biotechnology, to have uh, more science-based SPS policies. Uh, there are a lot of things we can do with Argentina and Brazil to encourage third countries to treat our products fairly. So we look forward to the opportunity for more cooperation with Argentina. At the same time, if our dollar is stronger and they devalue the peso, is that within the guises of trade? Well, again, uh, I think currency policy and trade policy are certainly related, uh, but not necessarily the same. And so we'd be watching that closely. But at this point, I have not uh, personally seen proposals that would run afoul of trade rules, per se. With regard to the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the text is now public, and we've been evaluating that over the, the past several weeks. I would just ask, from from your perspective, who worked so hard for this agreement, how should it be evaluated? Well, I think if you look at the numbers, uh, they're pretty convincing. The TPP brings together 12 countries from the Asia-Pacific, and for U.S. agriculture, I think it's a really interesting combination of new and greater access for agricultural products from developed countries like Canada and Japan, who can buy our highest-value products, where we can sell um, you know, high quality for a high price, and countries like Vietnam and Malaysia and others in that region that right now are good uh, customers for commodities, where we face a tariff disadvantage from some of our key competitors like Australia and New Zealand, who already have trade preferences to that region, but where their increasing population and increasing middle class means that we see a strong upward trend in the volume, the value, and the variety of what they should be importing. So I see huge opportunity for us to be sending not only corn, soybeans, skim milk powder, uh, but also high-value products products like meats, uh, dairy, cheeses, uh, fresh fruits and vegetables. So, uh, you know, I think this is a good agreement on day one, Mm -hmm. and its value will only increase. On one hand, an industrial worker who fears that his job may be lost and could be lost. On the other hand, agriculture who sees opportunity to that growing middle class and does such gross domestic product of the globe. This is not an easy decision, but yet it is a decision. How do we speak to both camps? Well, I don't think it's it's an easy decision necessarily because trade in itself and global supply chains are complicated. But I think the very fact that global supply chains are so intricate does not necessarily mean that integrating these 12 economies means that the jobs go somewhere else. Uh, in fact, because of the different supply chain opportunities, it may mean that we can source inputs for manufactured goods here more cheaply and send them to TPP countries at a tariff advantage over key competitors. And so as globalization tends to um, integrate supply chains and produce products with inputs from several countries, I think there are both opportunities there as well as challenges in manufacturing and in the processed foods ag sector. And I think it's important that we don't confuse globalization with a trade agreement. Some of the comments that I hear uh, from the anti-trade camp would suggest that if we didn't have trade agreements, globalization would just stop happening. And frankly, that's just not true. We've seen uh, trade in a variety of products and the movement of global goods and capital increasing with countries where we do have trade agreements and those where we don't. Wouldn't we rather create an incentive 
to increase our trade with those countries who have also been willing to sign up to labor provisions, environmental standards that are similar to our own. Uh, that's what these trade agreements do, is they work to level the playing field about the types of protections, whether it's for intellectual property or for you know ter- wages, that uh, we have in this country. TPP will require our TPP partners to raise their standards to a level we enjoy here. Is there any way to amend this program? Uh, you know, at this point, the agreement itself, the terms of the agreement have been, uh, we all shook hands in Atlanta in October about what that text says. And the hard thing is that when you have 12 countries at the table, everybody has to have that right balance between uh, the concessions that they made and the gains that they see. And so if you pull one provision out of that and say, we want to improve on this a little bit, um, other countries will do the same. If you improve this, I'm going to need something else over here. And so I think the danger is that it begins to unravel uh, the structure of the whole agreement. So I don't think renegotiation is an option. Um, but, you know, there are things we can do, and we're discussing very actively uh, with members of Congress to talk about how we would implement this agreement and uh, what those uh, provisions would look like uh, on the ground. What about adding partners to the Trans-Pacific Partnership where you have the base of 12, but I know that there are others who are interested in some that might be an advantage if they came into the fold. Well, there are a number that are interested, and uh, TPP has always been envisioned as a platform. We went forward with 12 countries who were willing to adopt the highest standards ever in a trade agreement, who were willing to put every single product without exception on the negotiating table, and were willing to adopt higher standards in areas like intellectual property in labor and environment to make them part and parcel of an agreement. And by demonstrating the benefits, both in tariffs and in market access and in the rules of that strong agreement, we hoped it would attract others. And it's doing that already. Within the first week after we all shook hands in Atlanta on the the terms of this deal, eight different countries contacted Ambassador Froman, our U.S. trade representative, to say, when can we join? And some of those countries have been very public about that. Uh, The Philippines, Taiwan, the president of Indonesia was in Washington, D.C. a month after the agreement and said, we envision ourselves as part of TPP. And we have an opportunity at this point. The original 12 set those standards. Any country who joins later will have to simply accede to those rules and then negotiate their market access or their tariff commitments with all 12. So we'll have a great deal of leverage, frankly, on these future participants, and uh, we'll be able to keep those, the high standards we set in the original agreement. Technology has been a barrier to U.S. agricultural trade, and many in the industry are encouraged that a part of the TPP, technology is included. That's right. For the first time ever, we have an annex, our language on biotechnology, in the TPP agreement, where all the countries recognize the importance of basing your biotech approval systems on sound science uh, and looks at ways to share information to deal with trade issues that might arise about different approval schedules for biotech events, for example. Um, You know, on the flip side, This is the first agreement that recognizes organics as a growing part of the agriculture industry as well and encourages those members to look at how we might recognize equivalency of of organic standard systems. So I think this agreement in particular really looks at uh, growth segments of U.S. agriculture and says this is something where our country should be working together. How important is the agricultural voice during this debate and when it does finally come up in Congress? 
Well, the agriculture voice is critical. It always has been uh, when it comes to trade and to, to our trade policies passing. Uh, and we need that voice to be out there and be loud and to demonstrate the real benefits of this agreement. And I think when agriculture thinks about TPP and what it means, we have to keep in mind that the alternative to TPP is not just going back to the world as it exists today. It's not just a tariff uh, a tariff cut versus not having it, because the rest of the world is not waiting for us. Um, there are a number of other trade agreements in that same region that are being negotiated between TPP partners and our competitors. The world will not stand still while we wait to consider this agreement. And so we may find ourselves um, without preferential access while all of our competitors have it to the same countries uh, in, in this region. And that includes China who is working on negotiating the RCEP, this Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, as they call it, with almost all of the same countries in TPP and beyond uh, in that region. And the model that they are using for this trade agreement is not as comprehensive in market access. It does not contain the kinds of protections we would like to see for labor, the environment, for intellectual property. It does not provide disciplines on state-owned enterprises, which, as we know, are a big force in China's economy. And so we have the opportunity to put forward a model for agricultural trade that mirrors the way we do business here. Um, but if we don't take the lead, others will. What is a probable time frame in Washington? Well, again, as we were just discussing about what TPP holds for us in terms of its promise, the sooner the better in terms of its approval. Uh, you know, right now, U.S. beef heading into Japan is at a 10-point tariff disadvantage to Australian beef because the Australia-Japan free trade agreement is already in force. The day TPP comes into force, we will be on level footing with uh, Australia once again. So every day does matter, and so we are hopeful that Congress will consider this as soon as possible. Um, we are working very closely with Congress. Any member, any member of any member's staff who asks for more information to be able to better evaluate that agreement, uh, we are ready to engage in that discussion. Um, but it's really important that they hear from stakeholders too. We have heard different things from different members, but I think the facts should speak for themselves. And so uh, we are working very closely with members and stakeholders in D.C. and around the country to demonstrate the benefits. What happens if we say no? Well, I think not only does that mean we are behind economically, we waste an opportunity to forge an economic partnership that immediately would benefit us with 12 countries but others in the future, but this is a test of American leadership. We have asked other countries, and they have been willing for the opportunity to integrate with us mm -hmm to make very difficult um, political changes to their systems, uh, to make very difficult choices about signing up and, and reducing their tariffs or eliminating their tariffs for U.S. products. Uh, and all of that information, as you say, is out in the public. So those countries have made clear what challenges they were ready to face for the opportunity of TPP. And if we don't then deliver after asking them to make that sacrifice, uh, that's a pretty big deal. And so it is important that uh, as we pledge to these countries that we'll move forward together that we hold up our end of the bargain. Any closer, any movement, any 
place with regard to the TTIP negotiations? Well, we certainly hope that 2016 will be a big year for TTIP. We'd like to advance those negotiations as far as possible. Of course, for U.S. agriculture, we have a very strong interest not only in reducing Europe's tariffs, which are much higher than our own, but really getting at those SPS issues that have significantly hampered our ability to serve European customers. So we hope to to look at uh, approvals for biotechnology. How can we make sure that system runs more predictably uh, and in a more timely fashion? Um, EU's biotech law on its face is actually not so bad. And its uh, biotech regulators often make the same decisions we do about safety. Um, how can we turn that into then uh, faster approvals for those products? Uh, we're working with them on approving pathogen reduction treatments for uh, for poultry, on looking at better access for our beef producers. And so um, I think our challenge for TTIP is how we move forward both on the regulatory and on the tariff side at the same time to make sure whatever market access we achieve can be utilized. Recently, an agreement within WTO partners. What was the agreement and what does it mean? Well, as you know, we just finished the WTO ministerial in Nairobi, Kenya, and I think we have a couple of of good results there. Uh, As you know, the Doha round has struggled (laughs) for 15 years now, uh, trying to find a a way forward uh, for U.S. agriculture, but for industrial goods and services as well. And we haven't been able to come up with the right set of trade-offs. And so it's regrettable that the agreement in Nairobi was not able to deal with the formula for market access or tariff cuts. Uh, We did not take on new disciplines when it comes to domestic support in countries around the world. But what we did do is get a pledge that all countries must eliminate their export subsidies. And those are the most distorting types of subsidies. They're directly focused, of course, on subsidizing goods that go into the international marketplace, and so they can have a real effect on on prices and the welfare of trading partners. So I think it is important that we were able to do that. Uh, We also provided some disciplines on export credit programs. Um, What we agreed to is very similar to the changes we've recently made in our farm bill and in our uh, dispute settlement of the cotton case with Brazil. So it will require no change in U.S. policy, but it will make sure that other countries' credit programs also are, are disciplined as well. But I think most importantly, what it did was force a real conversation about whether the Doha round can continue and whether the the formulas, the structure of the Doha round really takes account of the fact that we now have emerging economies who have a massive impact on agricultural prices and the agricultural economy globally. You have Brazil, India, and China, who has both exporters and importers have a great deal um, to say about the volatility and the price structure in the global marketplace. And so after Nairobi, we now have an opportunity to reframe that conversation in Geneva and say, what would an appropriate new agreement in Geneva look like? And how would it discipline countries? And, And perhaps all developing countries aren't created equal in terms of their economic impact, and their commitment shouldn't be exactly the same either. There is word that Brazilian soybean farmers are asking their government to investigate and perhaps file a challenge to the crop insurance program for the soybean industry in the U.S. This is a first blush, and there's not a case, but what possibly do they have to stand on, or do they have anything to stand on? We have heard similar rumors, although have not had any communication with the Brazilian government about this, so at this point it is just speculation. But I do think that uh, if they were to challenge it, this is not a small burden of proof. 
the United States is well within its payment, um, the levels of, uh, of payments that it can make to farmers. We have a, a binding level um, of farm payments that we can make uh, within the different uh, categories of domestic support. That's not what they would challenge. What the Brazil would have to show is that the programs that we operate, whether it be ARC or PLC or crop insurance, that they cause, quote, serious prejudice in the marketplace. That's the standard. So that the payments that we made actually caused planting decisions and influence prices globally. That's not the easiest standard uh, for them to meet. And let's keep in mind, we talked earlier about the fact that Brazil exported more soybeans than we did. It certainly doesn't seem to be having a dampening effect on their production. So while we have heard that their soybean producers are concerned about our domestic support program, again, we've not yet heard from their government. And I don't think it's uh, the slam dunk case that some would present it to be. There is an evaluation now by the secretary, and I think even evaluation if the secretary has the authority to make changes with regard to oil seeds in the U.S. How should we evaluate farm program changes in light of trade? Well, you know, this obviously is um, a difficult decision for Secretary Vilsack. Um, we have uh, seen and heard about these proposals. But from a USTR perspective, what we would look at is whether any new program design, again, fell within our payment limits, our commitments we have in the WTO, and how they might um, impact other, other growers. And so we would look at it from a trade perspective and provide our, um, our input uh, to the Secretary in making any, any decision on new programs. But, you know, we would look primarily as to whether it fell within those specific rules we've undertaken in Geneva. Ambassador Vetter, we want to thank you for spending time with us here on Open Mic, and it is Open Mic, and you have the last word. Ah, well, thank you very much. Uh, I want to thank you for uh, for your partnership, and again, we just look forward to a very active uh, year on trade. Thanks so much. Our thanks to Ambassador Darcy Vetter, our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by NCIS, the crop insurance industry. NCIS provides the primary safety net for millions of acres of cropland and hundreds of commodities across the U.S., enabling U.S. farmers to supply our country with food and fiber year after year. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Alley.